Welcome to another episode of Blase Blah Film Chat. I know it's been a while since the last episode. Things have gotten kind of hectic in the world. Everything's been kind of topsy-turvy with the world being on lockdown. You know, not being able to move about freely as we once were. Makes you reminisce on the small things you took for granted. Like being outside, going to the park or beach, or going to, you know, a movie theater or a museum. But that's why I think the film selection for this episode of Blase Blah Film Chat It's just right because it perfectly captures the beauty of just existing and being in the moment. And it takes you to a place of remembering what it's like, you know, having your mind blown when you meet a certain type of individual for the first time. If you're wondering what film I'm talking about, enough of the buildup. In this episode, I will be discussing Medicine for Melancholy, written and directed by Barry Jenkins. This film premiered at South by Southwest in 2008. It was nominated for a bunch of Independent Spirit Awards It won the San Francisco Film Critics Circle Marlon Riggs Award. And what's really amazing about this film is that the budget was reportedly $15,000. And this made me think of the film Swingers, which is also a really great indie film that I think it was made in 1996, somewhere in the 90s. And people were shocked at how low the budget was, you know, because it just looked so great. But that film's budget was actually $200,000. So the way that Barry Jenkins stretched $15,000 here is just... A very commendable. So I actually prepared for this episode almost two months ago, but I think it's perfect timing that I'm actually recording it now in this moment in time. You know, what is it? May 2020. Because the title of this film, I think it sums up the feelings that many of us have right now. And I guess I hope this this little deep dive into Medicine for Melancholy serves to maybe uplift the spirits of you creative souls out there you know, listening to this episode and just kind of wanting some inspiration or, you know, 
can, you know, just have your spirits uplifted by just focusing on beautiful art. So I chose Medicine for Melancholy because I would say it's in my top movies that just took my breath away unexpectedly. Like for me, it's up there with certain films like City of God, Fruitvale Station, or um, Beast of the Southern Wild, where I remember the feeling in the pit of my stomach when I finished watching those films. Probably more than I remember, you know, just the entire plot of those films, if that makes sense. Like, those films just leave an imprint on your psyche to where you just you just remember a feeling that you got or that you get when you watch those films. And I think that's always the best when you aren't expecting too much from a film and then it just over delivers. Because I remember with Medicine for Melancholy, how I kind of stumbled upon this film. I remember being at my dad's house and this had to be in 2014. And I had just taken the bar exam this particular day. And so I just needed to decompress. So I'm at my dad's house. It's kind of, you know, late at night. And I was watching Half Plenty, which is another great film by Christopher Scott Shiro. I think that's how you pronounce his name on Netflix. And so when it went off, there were three film suggestions on the screen for me to watch next. And I don't remember what the other two were, but I remember I had already seen them. So I thought, okay, well, let me try this film, Medicine for Melancholy. And at this point, it was probably like one o'clock in the morning, so I really wasn't expecting to stay up and watch the whole thing. But, you know, my body's sleeping pattern was off, you know, for, for you know, having studied for the bar, you know, the past two months. And so I was going to stay up in my dad's, you know, recliner until I dozed off. But... I just remember from the first frame of the film, I just was mesmerized and I wind up staying up to like three o'clock just to finish it. It's literally a film that I play with the volume down as I'm working or reading a book. 
I just like to have it in the background because it just gives me vibes. But after watching the film for the first few times, I started to wonder, okay, who is this Barry Jenkins guy? And you know, what other films has he made? Like literally, I watched that film three times in a row, like within... I don't know, one or a, a, a one or two day time span. But so I start following him. I found him on Twitter. Um, and, you know, because I just wanted to know, okay, what was this next film? What else has he directed? And I was kind of bummed to see that he hadn't directed another feature since, you know, Medicine had been released in two thousand. And eight. But luckily, um, not too long after, he announced his new movie, Moonlight. So I was just very stoked just because I was kind of scared that he was going to be one of those black filmmakers with so much promise, you know, that just wind up getting lost or stuck in kind of a purgatory of trying to get their next film made. So I don't know. I just feel kind of cool that I stumbled upon Jenkins greatness a couple years before, you know, he skyrocketed into success, making history, winning an Oscar for best picture for his film, Moonlight, of course. But enough of me gushing over Mr. Jenkins. Let's get into this film chat. There's so much that I want to discuss about this film. And a warning, this podcast is definitely going to be a total spoiler. I discussed the entire plot and, you know, I don't hold back anything. So if you haven't seen the film and feel like, you know, this will ruin it for you, then go watch it first. You can find it um, on a streaming service and then come back and listen to this episode because... Then you can listen to, you know, my impressions of it, you know, my little technical breakdowns. And then, you know, you can yell at your phone if you disagree with me, because you can't yell at me in person, of course. So, this film stars Wyatt Cenac and Tracy Higgins both of whom I was not familiar with, you know, at the time that I first saw this film. Wyatt had a familiar face, but I couldn't place him. But doing my Googles, I found out he was the black guy on The Daily Show, which I didn't watch, but I... Wish I had, after seeing Wyatt's performance um, 
in this film because he has such a distinctive sensibility that makes him just intriguing to watch and listen to. Mr. Sinak is also a pretty accomplished stand-up comic, um, and he starred in his own, a couple of his own television shows, one being People of Earth, and the other being Wyatt Sinak's Problem Areas, um, which aired on HBO. Tracy Higgins, she has several movie credits, um, but the one other than Medicine for Melancholy that I really love is her leading role in Black Girl in Paris, which is a short film based off of a book by the author Shay Youngblood, where she plays this writer um, who's living in Paris and she falls on hard times, financial hard times, and she meets a prostitute and they just go on this adventure of sexual exploration. It's pretty dope. I actually wish that, you know, that film was longer because I think it runs about 20 minutes. But... Higgins, she's just such a dynamic actress and I would love to see her in just more film projects. But Higgins and Sanak, they give such a realistic and understated performance in this film that is just so complimentary to Barry Jenkins style of storytelling. You believe every bit of their emotional ups and downs in this film and their chemistry is just so good. Um, it's just another adds to another layer of why I love this film. So this film it sort of looks like it's shot in black and white, but it's actually not. It's been desaturated to reduce the colorfulness. So you get kind of a hint of color, or kind of a little bit of splash of color. But a lot of the film, it does um, kind of seem like it's in black and white. So the film opens up on the character Micah, played by Wyatt Sennett. He's in the bathroom, splashing water on his face and brushing his teeth with his finger. This makes you think, is this a standard whole bath, you know, that many of you out there have, you know, taken at one time or another before taking the walk of shame. We then cut to a shot of a young lady lying in bed, looking towards a visual of Micah's lower half in the bathroom. So as the viewer, you're wondering, 
is this the night after? Yeah, this is this is probably a whole bath. Without saying a word, the young woman played by Tracy Higgins awkwardly joins him in the bathroom and takes his lead, you know, squeezing some toothpaste on her finger and gliding it across her teeth. It's still not clear what's up between them as they are both operating in total silence. We then see a shot of empty beer, remnants of a party, people sleeping all over the house. They're in this beautiful glass house in an upscale neighborhood in San Francisco, as we'll we'll soon find out. I love the overhead shot at this point where the camera is looking down from the top of the steps to a foyer with um, piles of shoes. Because as a viewer, you're still wondering what's up with these two. Are they a couple? They go down to the foyer to find their shoes out of the pile. And there's a subtle suspense and mystery as to, you know, what's going on or what has already happened. It's this thing that I love about Jenkins filmmaking because the pacing can seem kind of slow or drawn out, but it's something about how he directs and shoots his film that it's like all of his films that um, they compel you to just be patient and to wait for what's coming next on the screen. This same aesthetic is especially evident, you know, in his 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 critically acclaimed film moonlight you know there's just this long you know it's filled with you know these long beautiful shots and silence so continuing on no one still has spoken up until this point you just hear the natural sounds of their action so that's like great foley work and for those who don't know what Foley means, Foley is just the reproduction of everyday sound effects that are added to films and post-production to, um, it enhances the, the audio quality. So when you hear footsteps or door, you know, door slamming or floors creaking, a siren in the background, this is usually done in post-production by a Foley artist. I remember in college, I took a film sound class. Um, I had to go out and record a bunch of sounds to create a story and then edit it um, on quarter-inch real tape. This is back in the day. 
Um, I didn't think I would enjoy that class much, but it was actually the total opposite. I love the process of combining separate tracks and mixing them all into, you know, one track. And this is an area that independent filmmakers can focus on because good Foley work can bring just an authentic feel to scenes. So back, moving on, back to the film. Finally, the silence is broken by what looks like the party host who um, is Micah and Higgins' character. They're at the door. You know, he asks, he stops them, and he's like, you know, hey, where are you guys going? You know, I have cereal if you want. Um... Higgins, her character, heads out the front door, and Micah, he thanks him, but, you know, he refuses and follows um, Higgins out the front door. So, at this point, three minutes of silence has, about three minutes of silence has gone by before we hear any dialogue. This is a signature of Barry Jenkins' work. Where oftentimes in his films, where oftentimes, I'm saying not in his films, but oftentimes in a lot of films, we're bombarded by either a ton of dialogue or action um, and special effects. That's not the case in Barry Jenkins' works. Similar to Moonlight, this film is filled with extended silence among characters and the action. You have to kind of just be patient and just let the film play out. You have to let the story just happen. And it can be kind of frustrating if you haven't trained yourself to watch films like this because typical storytelling, um, the, the typical storytelling dynamic in film is that an inciting incident um, has to occur right away, uh, right away, you know, which... That sets the pace of the film and then the viewer is taken on a kind of, you know, whirlwind ride of inciting incident, you know, a peak and resolution and resolve. Um, whereas with this film in particular, it takes a bit longer to figure out what the story is exactly about. And... You know, it takes a while to figure out, you know, who you're even supposed to care about. Because we don't know if this if this is actually a couple um, and if they've had a big fight um, or if they are in the aftermath of an argument and, 
you know, maybe that explains the silent treatment that, you know, is seemingly going on. Um, or maybe they're just friends who have benefits or are they strangers who just met and had sex seemingly, but, um, again, we we still don't know why they're moving how they are because if we relate this to real life, if this was an, a normal, you know, hit it and quit it situation, usually someone makes an excuse to leave after the deed. But here, they spend the night together, so you kind of wonder, did they have a drunken night and pass out, or was it one of those nights when, you know, you have one of those instant soulmate connections and, you know, the guy is able to, you know, sweet talk you out your panties, you know, maybe within the first 45 minutes or so of meeting, you know, maybe y'all had a couple drinks. I mean, not that, you know, I've had much experience with these type of situations. Although I may have met a soulmate or two within, you know, a 24-hour time span. That's neither here nor there. I ain't gonna get into, you know, all of my tea right now. But regardless, um... You know, just regardless of not having that background information on this couple right away, is the cinematic ability of Jenkins. It's just so compelling that it draws you into the film so that you don't quite know where the story is going, but you're hooked and you're mesmerized. And you're just willing to sit back, you know, and just watch. So, with a little persuasion by Micah, the two go for breakfast at a little coffee shop over the hill. Now, this scene is... A beautiful shot showing San Francisco where they walk up this hill of wild foliage with the rows of hillside homes in the background. So how the camera is set up, it's behind the foliage and it's just a real cool shot. I love how the frame is cut in half, almost diagonally. So you have the top half showing the houses in the, you know, and then the, the back, the far background, and then the other half showing Wyatt and Tracy going up the hill. So just the scenic nature 
of Northern California is on full display. So they both make it to the top of this hill and they're looking down on the, I guess it's the city skyline before walking down the hill. But the camera, it stays in place on the skyline as they descend out of the frame and down the hill. This is a subtle hint, in my opinion, to show that San Francisco is one of the major characters in this film itself. You know, it's an important backdrop. And this is a signature Barry Jenkins where he's not heavy-handed in, you know, his storytelling. He slowly pulls out um, or lays out the story and he does it with beautiful camera work. It moves slow, but at a pace where... You almost get impatient, but you don't because it's intriguing enough to lure you in and almost kind of drag you along. So the next scene is at a coffee shop where Micah and Tracy Higgins her character they exchange um sort of awkward conversation you know the kind that you'd have after a one night stand the female character she's not too eager to reveal anything about herself except that we find out she doesn't have a job when Micah casually says, this is embarrassing, but I forgot your name. She responds kind of dryly, a matter of fact, I don't think we got there. Ding, 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 reveal. About the seven minute mark, it's clear that this was definitely a one night stand or, you know, hook up with a stranger. So, Micah, he introduces himself. And finally, this female character played by Tracy Higgins, she introduces herself and says her name is Angela. So after they have breakfast, you know, Micah, he offers to share a cab and they wind up doing so. Um, and they have this kind of awkward, silent ride where, you know, there's this big space in the back seat, you know, between the two. The camera shows the narrow and steep streets of San Francisco as the cab rides through the streets. 
And once the cab driver gets to her, um, Angela's stop, she jumps out, um, leaving Micah calling after her, but she ignores him. However, as fate would have it, she leaves her wallet behind in the cab. So once Micah's home, you know, he contemplates what to do and he looks at her ID and gets her address. You know, he looks her up on MySpace to um, research her, which you got to remember this was, when was this? This was released in 2008. So this was probably filmed, you know, 2007-ish, 2008. So MySpace was still popping at the time. But he learns that she's, you know, a vegan and she seems like a free spirit. Um, and her real name is not Angela. It's in fact Joanne. So Micah decides to return her wallet to her. And he has to go on a bit of a search throughout the city um, because the address on her ID is actually wrong or it's an old address. So we kind of see him, you know, riding his bike um, through the streets of San Francisco. And it's just really beautiful footage, you know, especially if you're not that familiar with the scenery of San Francisco homes. You know, you get a lot of good coverage just to see what the neighborhoods look like, which I think is kind of unique on film. When he finally finds the right home, Angela, or who we now know to be Joanne, she's shocked to see him, but she lets him in because she's appreciative of him returning her wallet. Her home is very nice, you know, and it seems to be located in, you know, a pretty exclusive neighborhood in San Francisco. And it's definitely too nice for someone without a job. So Michael, Micah, he asks her, you know, who pays for the rent and she reveals her boyfriend does, but he's actually in London um at the time the time being and we find out that this boyfriend this mysterious boyfriend he's a curator and this prompts Micah to ask Joanne if her boyfriend is white and he also he notices the bare walls in the the apartment and he thinks it's kind of weird since, you know, he's an art curator. And in describing, I actually wound up discussing this film with a friend of mine. And I was describing this particular scene. And my friend made an observation that maybe the empty walls in the apartment signified that the boyfriend considered Angela or Joanne um, 
as one of his collectible pieces of art. And that just made so much sense to me. You know, you have this bare white apartment where, you know, the same it's the same as the white walls and say an art gallery that this man, you know, has curated instead of mounted photographs or artwork, Joanne or Joe for short. She's the art that moves across the stark white walls of this apartment. So I don't know. I just thought that was kind of very interesting kind of social commentary, you know, for this black woman who is seemingly being kept by this well-off white man. And so this scene is shot very interestingly because it cuts back and forth between shots of Micah sitting on the far left of the frame with the light shining behind him. And then Joe, she sits on the far right of the frame in her shop with, you know, the bare wall directly behind her and this big foyer in front of her. Um, and there's like a door in this foyer. I like how this positioning, it creates distance between them and it magnifies the discussion they are having where Micah is trying to, he's trying to be let into her world, but she still has a wall up and is closed off to him. You know, so it's kind of to me that door and where it's positioned, it kind of signifies that, you know, she still has this wall up and she's not ready to, you know, the door locked and she's not ready to let him in. This type of shot is what I love about, you know, independent kind of lower budget films because the director has to get very creative and intentional with his his shot selections. And he has to be able or she has to be able to say so much with the camera angles and shots and lighting as opposed to, you know, being able to use the fancy bells and, and whistles of um, bigger budgets and, you know, the, the shot selections that you're able to have, you know, say when you have a hundred million dollar budget. This to me is, this is just a good example of, um, you know, what film language is all about. Just having a good grasp of it. 
So responding to Micah's insistence on knowing if her boyfriend is white, Joe, she finally responds saying, it doesn't matter. So Micah spots a guitar and decides to, you know, do an impromptu serenade and lightens up the mood with his bad guitar playing. Um, eventually, Joe, she informs Micah that she needs to run an errand and he decides to go with her. So we see them riding bikes through the streets. Um, I love the handheld shots as they go through the streets. It just gives um, these shots just a kind of just natural, organic feel to the um, to the film. Once they arrive at an art gallery, Joe asks Micah to stay outside with their bikes as she goes inside to handle some business for her boyfriend. Micah seems a bit taken aback. And, you know, he actually asks why, to which she replies, think about it. Because while she seems to love her boyfriend, she has been dishonest with him. You know, she's intentionally misled him to believe that she's, 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 she's been alone, you know, this entire day. Um, while she, in fact, she's kind of decided that she wants to find out more about Micah and, you know, she wants to explore the city of San Francisco with him, but she's still not, you know, she's not crazy. You know, she's not going to bring Micah into a place of business that, you know, her boyfriend obviously has some type of, you know, business there. So she ain't crazy. But we see their chemistry developing as they share cute banter. They try to figure out what black folks do on a Sunday and we see them arguing um, on whether or not black people go to museums on Sundays. Um, they wind up discussing Little Kim's Get Money, sampling Sylvia Striplin's You Can't Turn Me Away. And so instead of going to the Museum of Modern Art, which is Joe's suggestion, Micah takes them to the Museum of the African Diaspora. Upon entering, they admire a series of photos featuring beautiful black people in all of our glory lined along um, a wall as they walk up a set of stairs. They enter the Maya Angelou exhibit. They then come across a photograph of the door of no return. 
they sit in a dark room and listen to a monologue about going through the door of no return. This shot is lit where you can see their silhouettes and just enough of their facial features to see how they're they're being affected by, you know, the weight of what they're listening to. They have a sort of, they're having a sort of bond of blackness in this moment. Something that Joe definitely doesn't have, she wouldn't have with her boyfriend. We then cut to a shot of them sitting next to a windowsill with the bright sunlight shining on them as they sit in a reflective silence. Next, we follow them sharing, you know, these kind of subtle glances. We see, you know, they're connecting even more. They walk through another sort of outdoor art installation type thing and Micah gives a little subtle touch of the small of her back to guide her along. You know, this is just a a slight act of intimacy that I love to see in Jenkins films. The camera slowly wraps around them then cuts to a long shot of them. The sound of the waterfall splashing in this art installation. It's audible behind them. And it gives a kind of ethereal feeling of, you know, these two being lost in a water tunnel together. The next shot cuts to them walking through a garden-like space and then towards these arches. A music instrumental begins to play featuring, I think it's featuring cellos. These two, they're entering something some type of new emotional stage as the camera follows them under these arches and over the bridge. They're walking so closely that their hands, they start to kind of bump and then to where their hands meet. And then Micah kind of eases his hand into hers and he grabs a hold of her hand. At one point she says, this was just a one night stand. And he replies, it's only been one night. Can't do anything about it. The cello music, it speeds up and plays more aggressively as Joe runs away from him 
he has to chase her as she heads toward a merry-go-round. He catches up with her. He finds a seat on a horse next to her as they, they're going around on this merry-go-round. As the horses go up and down and they're, they're whirling around, it's kind of like I see the horses, the movement of them going up and down as, you know, this kind of great metaphor for the emotions that they're going through. So much is being said right now, just in this particular segment of the film, without anything being said. It's just been several minutes of just this intense music, instrumental, and just all of these kind of unspoken emotions flowing between the two. So the ride abruptly stops and they dismount. The scene ends and we cut to a noisy street. It's like you're thrust back into the real life. And as the viewer, you're kind of thinking, okay, has the fairy tale stopped? Is this ride over? (sighs) I mean, I just really love this segment of film from, you know, once they, you know, went into the the door of no return portion of the museum to when they went to the water art installation and just crossed the arches and then wind up making their way over the, they went under the arches over the bridge and made their way to the merry-go-round. That's like my favorite part of this film. Like there are sometimes literally, cause I wind up having to just buy this film. I found it on um, Amazon, I think, and just bought it. So there are times literally when I'll just put in the DVD. Yes, I still have a DVD player. And I just will fast forward to this segment of the film because I just like how it makes me feel. But it's just, I tell you, every time I watch this film, I just find myself smiling because it perfectly captures the moment when a spark ignites between two people. And you don't know if it's love, if it's like, or, you know, if it's infatuation, if it's fleeting or long lasting, but it's just the energy of abandon that two people have when they like each other. I can't even off the top of my head recall a film that captures that thing the way Jenkins does here. And for it to be between two black people, this is the black affection. I think many black film goers yearn to see. And, you know, it's it's what like you I what I've heard in critiques about other films lacking. Because here, you know, there's this black man chasing this black woman down. 
because and you can just tell he just you know thinks she's the bee's knees and you know this it's just a display of you know again just black I can't say it's black love right now because you know we don't know what this is between them but this this black affection this black energy is good to see on film so just awesome, awesome filmmaking right here. So we cut to Micah's small cramped apartment. And, you know, he brings in his bike and Joe, she notices another bike um, mounted and Micah tells her, you know, it belongs to his ex-girlfriend and he also reveals that he took the bike back from her. So, aha, we have another reveal that Micah has gotten out of a relationship. Is this why he's so eager to form a bond? Or is he trying to get over an old relationship or something? So Joe, she looks around his home and, you know, she sees a poster made in, you know, July from like 1962. It pretty much has an excerpt uh, basically calling for gentrification in San Francisco. So it kind of shows that that process has been happening for several decades. It's not something that just occurred. Micah tells her that, you know, he's born and raised in San Francisco, whereas Joe, she's a transplant, so she's not really familiar with the history um, of the politics, you know, in this city. Micah comments how he loves and hates the city at the same time. He just feels like you shouldn't have to be a part of the middle class to enjoy it. Joe, she winds up talking him into taking a shower, you know, since he's kind of been up now for 24 hours straight and hasn't uh, taken a bath yet because he, you know, spent the whole morning chasing her down and then hanging out with her. So um, while he's in the shower, she opens up his computer you know, to do a little bit of snooping. And to her surprise, she finds her own profile open on his computer on, um, what is it, MySpace or whatever the social media is. So she winds up going to his page and she finds pics, pictures of him with his ex-girlfriend. And surprise... But not really. This ex-girlfriend appears to be white. Or at least non-black. So Micah, you know, he gets out of the shower and they eventually wind up lying in bed. And, you know, he reveals to her that he's a, a aquarium installer. And as he explains what his job is, his dialogue is heard in a voiceover while a montage of him working with the aquariums along with shots of fishes and, you know, fish tanks are shown. 
he explains that he likes the sound of the fish tank in his house. Um, he liked that he used to like the the sound of a fish tank in his house as a child. And he talks about how he used to leave his door open and listen to the water tank sounds. And so then we all of a sudden, we can hear the sound of the fish tank in his apartment. This scene, it gives the prior scene, um, you know, when they were at the water kind of installation thing or a water exhibit it gives it more exposition there was a sort of foreshadowing of his love for the aquatic at least that I picked up because I just that prior scene it was just something about the sound of the water it just stuck out to me so I just found it very you know just interesting how that was connected right here in this scene when we figure out, you know, what he's into and what he's interested in. So I thought that was a good tie-in. So anyways, Joe, she winds up spotting a guitar. She picks it up and, you know, she attempts to serenade Micah in the same way that he did for her. But nervous, she makes him turn around and then she turns around and they sit back to back as she starts to play the guitar. This shot is interesting. It's like how it's shot. He turns, um, because he, he turns, Micah, he turns to face the mirror and the camera, it moves from being on Joanne or Joe to um, it moves over her shoulder to show Micah in the mirror, then back to her profile as she's playing the guitar. You just gotta see it. It might sound kind of complicated with me trying to explain it, but anyways, I like that shot. And it kind of sounds like she can joke, she she can play um, the guitar a little bit better than Micah. However, we never see her hand playing the chords because the shot is tight on the two of them, you know, showing their shoulder, um, showing them from the shoulders and above. And if I had to guess, this is probably intentional because she probably doesn't actually play but they likely taught her a couple chord progressions um so you know she could simulate the motions of playing the guitar you know because it's kind of just evident how she's looking back and forth moving her head to find her head her hand placement on the strings to play that's a little something. I just recognized it as, you know, how beginners play guitar because they aren't quite comfortable without playing, playing without sight. So they have to kind of see where their fingers are being placed. And then you watch your other hand strum the pick to the, 
to the strings. So, but yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was awesome. Just awesome detail. So then there's a quick cut to them kissing. This shot is slow and is calculated. Then a flurry of frantic montage shots of Micah looking for a condom is shown. A kind of frantic music plays and then when once he finds the condom, the music mellows and a montage of them making love follows. I say making love because there are a lot of slow and um, sensual touching, kissing, and finger drags along the back, touching of the face. And I really like this scene because maybe I'm kind of conservative when it comes to showing sex on film. Or maybe it's because I like to see the foreplay and then the flourishes of, you know, two people having sex or making love. But I like how the camera never has to linger, you know, on her breast or, you know, her buttocks. Just, we just see, get shots of her back his hand on her shoulder, their legs wrapped around each other, their hands um, clapped together, them kissing. That's so much more sexy and intimate than, you know, just so many sex scenes where people are just, you know, just butt naked and going at it. I feel like this, this the way this is shot it just takes more thought and care is is put in to showing this type of intimacy between two people. So the next shot cuts to Micah sleep in bed and Joe sitting at um his window smoking a cigarette. And you know, she's sitting in her t-shirt and panties. She has a more aggressive demeanor. At this point, then just probably what a few minutes ago or hour, I'll give him an hour, you know, who knows how long it happened. Um, but you know, she tells Micah that she's hungry and they need to go eat. She kind of demands it, and she can't, she kind of seems like you know, she's reflecting on what they just did, so there's kind of a change in her disposition so you know the next scene they're at the grocery store and Micah's doing his Bill Cosby impressions so this is kind of couple activity as they walk home from the grocery store there it's a handheld camera shot that shoots across the street from them so the cameraman he's across the street and shooting them 
as they're walking down the street and then they stumble upon this community meeting that's happening. So then we wind up cutting to the scene where, you know, we're actually inside of the meeting and you know, there are a group of residents who are talking about rent control and gentrification in San Francisco and just talking about what's occurred since the dot-com boom and you have a man who states it's the end of East San Francisco referring to the city potentially losing 350,000 rent control units. So here's a point where we're reflecting back to that point where they were in Micah's apartment and discussing a poster that talked about gentrification. So we see now that, you know, what was predicted in the 1962 has actually come to fruition in the city now. So there is a cut to a shot of Micah and Joe staring off at a view of what looks like the Capitol building or some type of a building, probably in downtown San Francisco. The music changes to a song called No One Needs to Know by an indie group called The Changes. And again, it's that kind of um, Jenkins. He uses the music to kind of cue us that we're now, we're back to the real world. You know, he uses music in this film um, very masterfully in that way. It's like we're snapped back into reality. And this song, it was so striking to me how it just set the tone for what's going on between Micah and Joe at this point. Because one of the lyrics are, or part of the lyrics um, to the song are, here I am tonight and who knows how I got here. And I think it just perfectly sums up the moment. They are back to his apartment and there's a montage of them making a meal with no one needs to know is still playing in the background. She makes a comment about him keeping his wine in the fridge. They, you know, they wind up drinking and then they wind up sharing a spliff. Another music debate occurs where, you know, they discuss Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby versus Queen's Under Pressure. Micah says Vanilla Ice used the beat better. And Joe says there's no question between Queen and Bowie versus a Vanilla Ice. They debate Rick James' Super Freak um, or MC Hammer's You Can't Touch This. And, you know, there are just shots of them looking at each other that are just very sweet. And you see how the emotions are bubbling. 
Micah turns serious all of a sudden and asks about, you know, how black people are only 7% of the city. He talks about how if you go to a concert, there's probably only one black person out of 300. And, you know, they probably have their arm around a white person. Joe gets annoyed and, you know, feels like he's too wrapped up in race and, you know, that he he's he's more than, you know, being defined as black. He's he's Micah. She ends the convo and says she wants to dance. So they catch a cab. This cab ride is different than the first one because now they know each other more. So they're cuddled up together, you know, as the night streets whiz by them out the window. They end up at a really loud dive bar, which is my kind of scene. I love a good dive bar here in LA. A montage of them at the photo booth. Um drinks getting drinks at the bar dancing wildly um and just being carefree amongst um and very kind of eclectic hipster crowd there's a dj playing vinyl records after this kind of lengthy montage they end up at a taco truck which is very california northern or southern cali um you always find a good taco truck outside of the club. So they wind up walking home and Joe gets a call or a text that distracts her while Micah, he's, you know, going on another drunken rant about interracial dating. He says, you never see a black girl with the Asian dude or an Indian guy with the Latino girl. And he kind of, you know, makes the, he makes a remark saying, you know, someone of color is usually hanging onto a white person in the city. This made me pause and wonder if Micah as a black man would be having the same issues with Joe if she were dating um, an Asian or Latino man. Is that better than her dating a white man? He kind of blankets persons of color. Conveniently here, maybe to justify to himself, um, you know, dating that woman we saw him in pics with earlier because she looks white. But maybe she was Latina or Asian or a non-black Latina, to be clear. I don't know. But I just thought that was interesting. And so Micah, he winds up asking Joe, why do you have to date a white dude? And she responds by flipping it and asking, you know, him just because they're both black, does that mean they should be together? And she points out that she spent the last 24 hours cheating on her boyfriend. 
They just have a knack for going from love to hate in an instance, which is kind of what makes this film exciting because it's just like you never know like what's what's going on between these two. You know, it kind of seems like they're digging each other, like they're falling in love, and then it'll just be the total opposite. But here, um, I think Joe, she's having, you know, a moment of self-realization because, you know, maybe she's, she's had doubts before, you know, like maybe she thinks she thought that she's missing out on something, you know, by being with a white man which is why she spent the whole day with Micah. But she's also having a reality check about the fact that she and Micah may not have as much in common outside of them being black. And, you know, that pretty much kind of being their shared experience. Um, So she winds up hailing a cab and jumps in it and then drives off without Micah. The cab, it then winds up stopping a little ways up the street and Micah jogs to get in. So I like that little kind of suspense your tension because you kind of think, oh my God, is she really about to leave his ass? And no, the adventure doesn't quite end right there. So we wind up cutting to a shot of them kissing in Micah's doorway, you know, so it's just so much back and forth. She stops and says she needs to go to the bathroom. And after she's done, you know, he uses it. And then he comes out and asks her, you know, if she's leaving. And, you know, he tries to convince her to stay the night. There's a close-up of them embracing and she's torn and contemplating, you know, and she, she seems to be tempted. And then the scene fades to black. The next shot is the next morning and Micah is asleep on the couch. So we can kind of see like, you know, she probably had one more roll in the hay with Micah just for good measure. So the camera pans through the empty apartment, then out the window, down the fire escape, where we see Joe on her bike. She looks up at Micah's apartment one last time, then she rides away. I love this handheld shot looking down at Joe through the bars of the fire escape or balcony, whatever, you know, whatever that's called. The camera pans, still looking through the slats of the balcony as she rides away. Then it lingers on Micah's open window pane and, um, a pot of flowers and then the film cuts to black and then the end 
credits roll. So I know that was a very in-depth, deep dive of Medicine for Melancholy. Um, it's just one of those films that are like candy to a cinephile. It's so visually stunning and just a love letter to filmmaking as a whole. And it's so nice to see how Barry Jenkins has continued to add to his catalog of films um, with Moonlight and If Bill Street Could Talk. He also, um, he has some really beautiful short films worth checking out. One that I really liked is called My Josephine. Um, and it's about an um, Arabic man and woman working at a laundromat that offers to clean American flags for free post 9-11. And the other was called Little Brown Boy, about a young black boy who shoots a man at a basketball court. Both of these films were released in 2003, I believe. And just watching these short films, you see how masterful Jenkins is with creating um, an intimacy with characters and um, the world they live in. His shot selections are also so intricate and thoughtful in these short films. And Josephine, in my Josephine, there's a scene where the man and woman are watching the flag in the drying machine and the camera spins in a circle as it captures them reflecting, I guess reflecting their viewpoint. Um, and when the camera moves across um the bottom of the folding tables and stops to the couple folding the flag until they come face to face to meet the ends of the flag together. It's that subtle intimacy between, you know, potential lovers that Jenkins, he showed so well in medicine melancholy. I really liked Little Brown Boy because it is it's like a precursor to Moonlight to me. It has the same metaphorical shot selection and calm reveal of the character's plight. Um, there's a scene where after shooting the man the boy goes to a swimming pool as if to wash off the bad deed that he did. There's this nice shot of an open field. Long shots, you know, showing the boy juxtaposed against the field. Then the little boy, he lies down in the field and is kind of swallowed up by the foliage. I just, just, just love, um, again, the camera work the shot selection. I highly recommend taking a look at uh, those films, especially for filmmakers who are interested in learning 
how to do more with the camera and make more sophisticated and intentional shot selections. So I think that about covers everything I have to say on medicine for melancholy. It, ha- it has oh, another thing I want to mention. There's a really cool soundtrack to this film. And at the end um, of the credits, uh, there are still frames from the film uh, showing the song info used, which is pretty cool if you're interested in finding out um, what those songs are that were used in the film. Um, Yeah, I think that's about all. So thank you for joining me for another episode of Blase Blah Film Chat. I hope you all stay well. And until next time.